Welcome to the Natural Selection, where this week's theme is oceans. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The Natural Selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order. This week we have Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am other Nick. So, Nick, why don't you tell the listeners who we are? Well, we're The Natural Selection. We're a group of taxonomists who want to bring our passion for nature into the wild. Every week, we gather and talk about the natural world. In the first section of the podcast, we'll talk about recent news, interesting research from the past week. And in the second part, the main body of our podcast, we'll talk about a different theme each week that relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week, our theme is oceans. Exactly. Uh, I suppose with oceans, there's quite a deep well of things that we can talk about. But I think we decided because of that, we'd sort of limit ourselves to the open oceans. Just because otherwise, there's a lot to, it's a lot to read about, isn't there? Yep. Fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for that reason, we're going to be a bit more pacific than we suggested. Um, you can both laugh now. You used that one last week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if it's gold, don't drop it. That's what they say. That's true. They do say that. Nick, if you could just a couple more puns to tide us over until we get to the main theme. Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was in the um, last episode. I can only think of one more, which is Atlantic, and I can't think of what else that rhymes with. Have we all had nice weeks, though? Yeah, yeah, good week. I actually think I spotted a kestrel this week. That was pretty cool. Well, it was some sort of bird of prey a raptor and i only saw it for like maybe a minute but i my best guess is that it was a kestrel but it was oh, in the city which is very weird Ooh. i know that some mm. birds of prey like peregrine falcons live in london don't they mm. they dive between the buildings to hunt pigeons cool how about you nick seen anything cool mostly just bones not like not like out in the wild but like you human know, I, I, no, no, you know, in the museum. So I've seen museum bones, but like nothing in living, sadly. Oh, did I mention last week that I went to see to the zoo? I don't think I did. You didn't. Um, I went to the zoo last week and had the best time. That's exciting. What was the smallest animal you saw? Well, to be honest, it was a mouse, but it wasn't. It was in a monkey exhibit, but it should have been. It shouldn't have been there. <laughs> it was an invasive species. Yes, exactly. And the monkey was looking at it like it was one. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Because um, where you live, there are two zoos. That's true. Yeah. Um, where you live, too. Yeah, I've got my new house. Uh, and to the big one, the East Berlin Zoo. Oh. There you go. Where all the animals are treated equally. <laughs> Mice and monkeys. <laughs> exactly. They definitely have more space in the East Berlin Zoo than they did than they do in the West Berlin Zoo. What about you, Nick? Uh, I moved house, and on this is this giant creeper plant on the side of the building. And you can look at it; it's fine. It's quite nice to look at creeper plants, but you can hear it because it's the home to like 
all these birds. It's just constantly chirping every time you walk past the wall, which is pretty cool. I like that. So I've got a noisy bush. Hmm. Have you identified the birds, sir? No. No, I need Ollie, really. That from Australia should be able to help. Yeah. But uh, I'm not very good at birds, less at German birds. So, yeah, we shall see. We shall see. But I think that's enough about us. Shall we get on with the news? Welcome back, listeners. So in this section, we talk about news that we found this week relating to the natural world. Uh, so I found something, well, I suppose, good news this week. As you two know, I'm quite fond of an insect or two. And this study from the University of Georgia by Crossley et al. seems to suggest that there's more insects to love than uh, we might have expected. So what they looked at, they were looking at long-term ecological studies of insects across the United States. And they found that across the United States, there was no net insect abundance and diversity declines. So it appears that while some areas were declining in species and insects, other areas actually increased diversity and number of insects. And this completely flew in the face of what they were expecting to find. Uh, what they did say is that it's very counter to Europe. So they were trying to think of reasons why this might be. While Europe has probably is about the same size as the continental United States, um, it has about twice as many people. So Europe has a lot more population density and historically it's had a lot more population density as well which means the land for centuries has been manipulated by humans whereas America has been manipulated for a much shorter time so they think that maybe this long-term interference by humans might be causing the decline in insects as opposed to uh, any modern activity but the other thing they just say is worth taking at face value because some of the long-term studies that they looked at were may have stopped 10 years ago so any decline that accelerated in the last 10 years may not have been picked up by this study. But it appears at least what they seem confident suggests is that the loss of insects in America is not nearly as bad as the loss of insects in Europe. That's um, That also is counterintuitive because, of, of, to, in my mind, the thing that has so affected the, the biodiversity of insects, besides climate change, is the use of pesticides. And I know that in the U.S. we've been really bad about that. Well, that's interesting. I actually don't know um, much about how Europe uses pesticides. Um, either. But I imagine, because, yeah, the population density, I imagine there is still a lot of farmland going on and a lot of intensive farming. So maybe it's just not as publicized. Or maybe because it's each individual country that it's not amassed together in the same way that America is. I, I genuinely don't know on that one. Though. Good point. Good point. That is interesting. Yeah, definitely counterintuitive to what I would have thought a little bit. Yeah, some, re- maybe some good news. Yeah. Have you guys got good news as well? I've got some, it's neutral news, but it's, I think it's good. Um, it's not like a good, it's neutral news. Uh, so, uh, the title of the article that I found this week for our research, um, is called don't crush that ant. It could plant a wildflower. Um, which is, I mean, obviously that's why I clicked it. What a title. But basically it's, it's sort of an aggregate of different recent studies looking at ants relationship to seeds and essentially saying that ants, we know that we've known that ants sort of carry seeds around, use them for food storage, but then also that those seeds get fertilized. Well, th- sorry, that those seeds germinate in the soil 
and become plants. And the, the ants are a really important disperser for a lot of plant species. But it turns out, based on this sort of aggregate of different studies, that it's more of a two-way street than it seemed. So sometimes these seeds will attach little globules of food to the seed on the outside that like the ants are attracted to, and then they pick those seeds, and then that plant gets a wider dispersal, and they're sort of more favored by the ant colony. But apparently ants also have preferences. So they'll choose some wildflowers and wild plants over other wild plants, and they plant them in places where those plants will do well. Seems like ants are pretty good gardeners, it turns out, um, which is all stuff I didn't really know about the plant-ant relationship. Of course, the sort of caveat of this study is saying we're losing ant biodiversity worldwide, and as that happens, we'll also lose the main disperser for a lot of these plant species, which is going to limit their ranges and probably their viability as you know we move forward. So caveat, but some interesting cool stuff about plants and ants. Wow. Ants never cease to amaze me. They do some pretty cool things. Really? I know. Yeah. I really yeah. like ants. And what I really like about this is it's a symbiotic relationship that rhymes, which there's yeah. not enough of them. No. That's true. Yeah. There's not enough symbiotic relationships in general, but then the ones that rhymes are really special. I wonder if it helps with sort of co-colonization. Because if essentially they're taking their food with them and it plants, it might actually help spread the range of both those things. Mm, good point. Because we took our plants with us when we ran around the world, didn't we? The, yeah. I, I almost had another news story for us today that was also about ants. Um, but it, there was more to talk about with the ants and plants. But this one, since we're talking about ants, it's a, a, a new ant found in an amber. It's a fossil ant found in amber. Um, and it's caught... It's caught a cockroach, and it's like, it has a horn projecting from its head, and then these like vertical mandibles, and it has it caught in between them, like a, like a guillotine. Anyway, it's like a amber moment of death thing. Pretty cool. But anyway, plants and ants. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the statistics on that are. I know. Probably, yeah. <laughs> well, at first you'd say probably low, but then you think, I mean, ants got to eat, right? And if they're hunter ants, then they're going to be eating. And there's a lot of ants that eat. So they're mm. going to be eating a lot. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the amber crystallization? No, I don't know what that word is. Amber formation yeah. is? I don't know what those stats are. I'm going to take a cool, stab though. at amberogenesis. <laughs> I'm going to go for ambering. I bet we're all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Any amber experts get in touch. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I really like that. Can you compete with that, Naomi? I'm not sure, actually. Mine's not quite as... Yeah, I don't think mine's quite as cool as that. But mine is about woolly rhinos. So it's... I guess I would say it's kind of neutral as well. But this uh, paper is, was published in Current Biology, and it was looking at the genetics of woolly rhinos to try and understand what their population numbers were like before they went extinct. So to try and figure out what it might have been that drove them towards extinction. So they went extinct about 14,000 years ago. So this paper sequenced a complete nuclear genome from a woolly rhino that was from about 18,000 years ago. It also sequenced 14 mitogenomes, from from different populations in Siberia. And basically what this found 
was that the population was stable around the time that humans arrived. So one of the common ideas is that human hunting drove the woolly rhinos to extinction. But actually, the population seems to have remained stable for about 13,000 years following human arrival. The full genome suggests that there was no inbreeding, there was no reduced genetic diversity, so they were actually doing quite well. And actually, even at about 29,000 years ago, they even had maybe a bit of a population boost. So this suggests that actually their population decline was actually much more sudden and probably as a result of climate change. Nice. Nice to be off the hook for woolly rhinos, at least. <laughs> yeah, for, for one thing. <laughs> I suppose you said that's neutral news. Woolly rhinos are cool and all, but I'm, I'm sort of relieved that I don't have to contend with them on my commute. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I saw an image of a skull of one and it's pretty, pretty foreboding looking. I wouldn't want to uh, have to deal with that. Um, They're probably I'm, gentle giants, I'm sure. Oh, cool. Well, a lot of neutral and or good news. Definitely got whimsical in the middle with the wildflowers being planted by ants. I guess we should move on to our theme this week, which is the open oceans. You guys ready? Yep. Join us after this short break. Welcome back, listeners. So we're here to talk about the open ocean. And with a topic so vast, it's sometimes difficult to think where to begin. But Nick, I think you wanted to start at the very beginning, didn't you? That's exactly right, Nick. I wanted to start where it all began, uh, at least in many cultures around the world. The first thing that I wanted to talk about with oceans is the idea of the ocean is like the origin place of life, which is not only our like modern scientific creation myth, the idea that the sort of building blocks of life started in a ocean-like environment, but it's also like throughout the world, throughout time, it's one of the most common places where creation myths come from. Uh, even the most commonly known in the Western world, Christianity starts with God hovering over the face of the deep um, of the oceans and then bringing land and light to the to the world. And in many places, this sort of theme of like the oceans covering the world before Earth was there is a common theme. I wanted to read you something modern, which reflects these themes in these ancient creation myths, but sort of reflects where we are now in a really poetic way. So I'm taking on my literary correspondent hat again. And this is an excerpt from the book The Sea Around Us by Rachel Carson, who you might know from her book Silent Spring, which was about DDT and the sort of pesticide in the 70s, um, which actually started the environmentalist movement. In America, at least. So this is from one of her earlier books when she was writing more on the sort of nature all around us is amazing side of her writing career. The gradually cooling earth was enveloped in heavy layers of cloud, which contained much of the water of the new planet. For a long time, its surface was so hot that no moisture could fall without immediately being reconverted to steam. This dense, perpetually renewed cloud covering must have been thick enough that no rays of sunlight could penetrate it. And so the rough outlines of the continents and the empty ocean basins were sculptured out of the surface of the earth in darkness, in a Stygian world of heated rock and swirling clouds and gloom. As soon as the earth's crust cooled enough, the rains began to fall. Never have there been such rains since that time. They fell continuously, day and night, days passing into months, into years, into centuries. They poured into the waiting ocean basins or, falling upon the continental masses, drained away to become the sea. That primeval ocean, growing in bulk as the rains slowly filled its basins, 
must have been only faintly salt. But the falling rains were the symbol of the dissolution of the continents. From the moment the rain began to fall, the lands began to be worn away and carried to the sea. It is an endless, inexorable process that has never stopped. The dissolving of the rocks, the leaching out of their contained minerals, the carrying of the rock fragments and dissolved minerals to the ocean. And over the eons of time, the sea has grown ever more bitter with the salt of the continents. Reading this, to me, it sounds like a creation myth, but it's also it's rooted in at least 70s modern geologic theory of the creation of the oceans and the continents. I like that. It's an interesting mix of quite an emotive language, but but also, like you said, like the the actual technical sort of idea about what what's actually happening. Mm. I do find that appealing. There's that sort of endlessness to an ocean, which is kind of easy to relate to when you look out to the sea. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something very human. Like there's that idea of staring into the fire. You often hear that when you stare into the fire, you can almost feel the, the, the relationship with the first humans who discovered fire, that you could just sit there and get lost as it flickers in the nighttime. But I feel mm-hmm. that same thing with the ocean, because we often hug the sea as a species as we, as we traveled. Like even if you look at uh, maps of lights of the world, we saw see from satellites, it's all hugging the ocean. And we still have that strong draw towards it. And I think there is something that intrinsically fires our mind when we see that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it tells a lot about our literary and sort of cultural consumption is it sort of reminded me of the opposite of um, uh, a quote by Chidi from The Good Place. Go on. So he talks about, as opposed to life in the beginning, he talks about um, how Buddhists use the sea as a metaphor for death. So for a culture that may not believe in the, the sort of lineal concept of heaven and hell, like beginning and end, this sort of cyclical relationship sort of thing, he uses it to describe death as saying, by um, picture a wave in the ocean. So you can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight reflects when it passes through, and it's there, and you can see it. And you know what it is. It's, it's a wave. And then it crashes in the shore, and it's gone. But the water's still there. The wave was just a different way for the water to be for a, for a little while. And that's the sort of conception of death for a Buddhist, is that idea of the wave returning to the ocean. So the water's not gone. It's just life is experiencing itself in a, a different way. Cool. This is definitely our most philosophical episode so far already. Philosophy is not our strong point, really, is it? It's taxonomy. Naomi, have you found any interesting animals that you think we should definitely know about? One thing I want to talk about, it, it's a true thing, but it sort of stemmed from myths of sailors, that they would see these, like, massive, I guess, shoals of light in the ocean, and that for ages sailors were talking about, like, seeing light and the ocean glowing, and everyone kind of was like, nah, you're crazy drunk sailors or whatever, until finally satellites saw these bioluminescent shoals, which turned out to be plankton. And the sailors were like, oh, thanks, finally. But I wanted to talk a little bit about plankton. Uh, so those plankton that you might see that are bioluminescent are phytoplankton. And phytoplankton are basically the autotrophs. So they're the plankton that can create their own food. And just to explain a little bit about what plankton are, because this is something that I probably didn't know till like, embarrassingly late. I always thought that plankton were, like, a type of animal. I blame SpongeBob for this. But... I always thought, but basically what plankton are, it's to do with their niche in, and their level in the ocean. So plankton are everything that 
can't swim against the current, basically. So they stay in the upper levels of the ocean and they just kind of float there, get moved by the tides in the ocean. And then these phytoplankton are the ones that make their own food, which are pretty cool. They are responsible for making... So I I saw a couple of different estimates, but it was somewhere between 50 and 80% of the world's oxygen is produced by these phytoplankton photosynthesizing. There's one particular one, Prochlorococcus, and it's the smallest photo- photosynthetic organism on Earth. And this little bacteria produces up to 20% of the oxygen in our entire biosphere. Holy crap. Yeah. Is, is that the one that gets infected with a virus? Oh, I'm not sure. Potentially. So I know there's a phytoplankton that when it gets infected with this virus, basically its photosynthesis goes crazy. And it just, that's all it does. And then it dies and it locks all that carbon and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. So it was seen as a potential way to sort of take carbon out of the atmosphere because just this one species being affected by this one virus was having a huge impact. And there was a bit of sort of eco, eco-terrorism is a bit strong, but they were obviously very illegal. Where to test this, I think it was in Canada, one scientist actually deliberately infected a load of this stuff to see if it would have an effect. Did so, it have an effect or...? I don't didn't actually follow that up, but um, yeah, I remember seeing in the news that it was like ethically a very dubious thing to do because we didn't know the effects and yeah. it's messing with the ocean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just like you said, they take in carbon dioxide because they they photosynthesize. So one of the statistics I found was I think it's about twenty percent of the carbon dioxide that's released into the atmosphere is taken in by the ocean potentially. So that's pretty cool. So they are important. Uh, but they can be lots of different things. They're a very diverse group. They can be archaea, bacteria, algae, protozoa. And then the the zooplankton, which would be the kind of one step above in the trophic level. So they would eat the phytoplankton. Could be, say, larvae. They can be jellyfish because they don't swim against, the, even though they're a little bit bigger, jellyfish don't swim against the current. So Krill? Krill is one, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. They're really important, but it was something that, like, concept that I kind of, didn't really understand because I think ocean food webs are so different to land food webs that I think is a concept that I didn't really get my head around for a while. This this was a new, this is a little off topic from oceans, but related to what you're talking about, this was a new thing for me to learn is that because this plankton, the definition of plankton is by locomotion, the way that they move by currents, there are also what's called aeroplankton. They're plankton, they're bacteria that moved by air currents oh that's cool yeah cool like crazy i didn't know that that's really cool and another thing with these phytoplankton as well is that they can also have they can also have bad effects these blooms of plankton so basically a bloom is just when there is a a sudden rapid increase and some of them are natural some of them are human involved one that you might be more familiar with is algal bloom that you might see in a pond or a lake that kind of green sort of like scum on top of lakes and ponds that you see and that can be harmful uh that's a bad one there, there's also ones in marine environments there's not that many harmful species in marine environments maybe only about two percent of the like five thousand species of phytoplankton are harmful but they can release toxins so i think they can release neurotoxins and they can have effects on lots of different organisms yeah um, nick is this right in america there's problems with red algal blooms i was just gonna say yeah the red algal bloom is a big issue especially in the the sea of cortez and in the bay in bays around florida 
Um, and this, I should have mentioned this in our news section, but I, a friend of mine lives in Miami, which is a really ecologically diverse region. And he told me that this past week, the whole of the Biscayne Bay, which is a seawater lagoon and outside the city of Miami, is has reached a threshold point of low oxygen. And suddenly this past week, all the fish have died and washed up on shore. Oh, my God. Um, and usually this sort of thing is caused. It's not unusual in this part of the country for this sort of thing to happen because of algae. But this is actually because the seagrass in the bay has been slowly dying out over the last several years. Um, and it's finally reached a point where the seagrass can't produce enough oxygen for everything living in the bay. The pictures are pretty, pretty gr- gruesome. It's like really, really disheartening to see like hundreds and hundreds of dead fish on the, on the, on the beach. I hadn't heard about that. That's awful. It just shows how, you know, perfectly balanced these kind of ecosystems are. And then if one thing goes overboard, it really messes everything up. Well, wasn't that the case in Jamaica with one coral reef where there'd sort of been human activity had degraded the reef, but we hadn't really noticed because it, it looked fine. But then when one hurricane came through and blew out the reef because of all the activity we'd done, what looks like a healthy reef to us could not regrow. So it basically went away overnight. I guess the damages we cause may not be immediately obvious in these environments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was researching something, so I thought this was kind of a neat fact. I found the largest phylum of animals that lives exclusively in marine environments, which means that it has zero representatives on land and it has zero representatives in fresh water. So you might be thinking what a phylum is. So there's different ways that we sort of classify animals. So it goes, the very top one is domains, which is we are eukaryotes. So we have organelles in our cells, along with all other eukaryotes, but not bacteria or archaea. The next one is kingdom. So we're in the animal kingdom. For mammals, our phylum is chordata, which means uh, it's, it's sort of like vertebrates. So that's our phylum. But there is one phylum that lives in the sea, which doesn't have any representatives outside of the ocean or marine environments. Any guesses what that is? Nidaria? Nope. It's bigger than that. Naomi, you got a guess? Peanut worm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the proper name for that is. Sibuncula. It was the only one that I could think of that was sort of like a random phyla, so... (laughs) You're going to kick yourselves because it's actually a very, very famous phylum. It's uh, echinoderms. Ah. Ah. Uh, so this includes things like starfish, uh, bristle stars, sea cucumbers, sea urchins, and sea lilies, which are actually quite beautiful. There's also lots of extinct extinct representatives, but even in the extinct representatives, they couldn't find a single one that lives in, in fresh water or, or on land. There even might have been a relative that is pre-Cambrian. So I'm sure lots of our listeners have heard of the Cambrian explosion. The relative of this, they think, may have been before them. So what they find is in common with all of these is that radial symmetry. So ours is bilateral symmetry, whereas if we put a mirror in the middle of our face, it would sort of reflect. So we have an eye on each side, a nostril on each side. And that radial symmetry is actually, it's a symmetry like a circle, like how you imagine a starfish. And quite often that radial symmetry is five-way symmetry. What they found is a fossil, which is called Arcarua. And this Arcarua has that radial symmetry. 
Um, there's not a lot of other details, though. So the only problem is it doesn't have any madriprites, which is the way that echinoderms would get things into their mouth. The plates of stereon are missing as well, which is the structures uh, which might make the inside. So they can't find any of them, and they're represented in every other echinoderm they found. But this radial symmetry is really, really interesting, so they do wonder if it's actually part of the echinoderms. And some uh, taxonomists are even brave enough to put them in a certain group of echinoderms. So, um, they, don't have those, they don't have the plates? What are they thinking? Without the plates? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, interestingly, you guys, do you feel close to starfish at all? The, to me, they strike me as the most science fiction of the, marine, the, the generally known marine invertebrates. They're like, you rip off an arm, oh, right, their whole body is in a circle shape. You rip off an arm, which has an eye at the end of it, and then another arm grows there. Sometimes they have five arms, which is, like, normal-ish. Sometimes they have dozens. It's too much for me. I don't know, it's just weird. Nick Sasha, you touched on some really cool stuff there. So one is their regeneration abilities. So they've been the forefront of studies on how to regenerate generate bodies in the 20th and 21st centuries um, because they have this amazing ability that yeah if you chop off their arm it will grow a new one some of them if you chop off their arm that arm will then grow into a new star as well that's not right so yeah they don't quite have eyes on the end of their arms though they're similar they have they're what's called eye spots they can they can tell light and shade but they're not really an eye as we would understand it but they do have them on the ends of their arms uh, as well as lots of little feet so they have lots of little feet. And they're often predators. We think of them just sort of being quite sedentary and friendly, like uh, Naomi will know, Patrick the starfish. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, uh, what they often do is they will hunt down mollusks. They will use their legs to pry open their shells. They will then basically throw their stomachs inside the shells where they will release digesting juices, digest the mollusk, and then suck up all the juices back in uh, so they can eat. Uh, yeah. But so do you feel like you're related close to these animals in any way no 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 so what if i told you so they're part of the um they're part of the ambula korea uh, which is a clade of invertebrate phylas that include things like their hemichordates which is their sister group and this grouping is the sister group to all chordates so they are the closest invertebrates to things with a backbone hmm. doesn't seem right to me I know. It's weird to think that of all the things in the ocean that things with uh, sort of the spinal column can be related to, it's these with their five-way symmetry. Um, but I think that's enough about echinoderms, don't you? Yeah, let's move on. Um, we should hear about something else. How about some reptiles? So I decided to talk about marine reptiles because this includes my favourite animal, turtles. But I decided I wanted to talk mostly about fossil marine reptiles. So there's some pretty charismatic fossil marine reptiles. So we've got the mosasaur, plesiosaur, ichthyosaur. There also was a giant turtle. Um, it was about 11 feet long, the Archelon. Um, just to put it in perspective, the current largest turtle that is in the ocean is the leatherback turtle, and that's six foot long. So almost almost double the size of that. Yeah, that's about, I'd say that's about um, five or six ocelots. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I wanted mostly to talk about one particular paper 
that looked at a giant ichthyosaur. Um, so I thought this was really cool. They found a fossil jaw, a piece of a fossil jaw, off the coast of England. Uh, so they found it in Somerset, and it was a, a sort of a fragmented piece of jaw, but it was very large. Um, so it kind of took them a while. They weren't really sure, but they decided it was an ichthyosaur. So from this, they were able to compare it to another more fully formed ichthyosaur from a similar group called uh, Shonosaurus psychonensis. And they found that this fossil would have been about 25% bigger than the previous one. So using scaling, which isn't necessarily the most accurate, but it is a, um, a technique that's often used for fossils when you only have a fragment. So they suggest that this ichthyosaur may have grown up to about 25, 26 meters. And if you guys are aware, that's roughly about the same size as a blue whale, which is at present the largest animal that has ever lived. Uh, so this ichthyosaur may have potentially rivaled a blue whale in size. Nick, you like your etymology. So do you know what ichthyosaur means? My gut reaction says fish lizard. He's good, isn't he? He's very good. <laughs> Ichthyosaur. <laughs> yes. Saurus is lizard, and uh, Ichthys was Greek for fish, wasn't it? There's an amazing fossil um, in London of an Ichthyosaur, which I know we've all seen. I think I pointed it out to you, Nick, once. The one where it's giving birth. So it oh. died while giving birth. And crucially, this is really important because most reptiles lay eggs, whereas this one, uh, you could see, was giving birth to live young. So Ichthyosaur gave birth to live young. Um, uh, Nick, something that you said early on in our research for this was, wow, you guys don't like fish, huh? <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> because of what we had chosen to look at for our different, our different um, specialties for this week. And I just want to say that um, now I would like to talk about my favorite group of fish, mammals. <laughs> because as we know, mammals are part of the fish group. Monophyletic clade includes mammals and reptiles. Um, well, as we all know, because of the famous podcast, there's no such thing as a fish. A shock that in something about the oceans, you would find a way to make it about big mammals. Well, surprise. Yeah. Uh, are you going to mention like. any of their? Are you going to mention any of their bones while we're here? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to. Uh, great. Uh, so first I wanted to introduce the marine mammals, which um, are not a monophyletic group. They include representatives from many different branches of the tree of life, or the tree of mammal, uh, which, though the sort of diversity is spread out really unevenly among them. Some branches of the tree of mammal have almost all of the representatives that live in marine environments, and some have only one. So some of the ones that have many, many, many you've heard of, they're the toothed whales, the baleen whales, the seals, the sea lions. The, ba the toothed whales also include the dolphins and porpoises. Uh, so that pretty much covers the majority, like the huge majority of marine mammal species. But there are some groups that have a couple of events where one of their species has gone back to water after having lived on land, but it's only one. So for example, the dugongs, Sadly, I have to make a little side note here. There were two uh, in, in modern times, and one of them went extinct in the late 1800s, the stellar sea cow. Um, but we still have the dugong, the, the classic edition dugong. 
And then, of course, uh, there's the manatees, but I think there's a couple of species of them, maybe three. And all of the manatees are in the water. Walruses, I was surprised to find, are in their own family, and there's only one species. They're just all out there on their own, walruses. And the last group that has a representative, can you guys guess, uh, the final group that has a marine mammal representative? And when I say marine mammal, let me be clear that I mean they have adaptations for the marine environment. Not necessarily that they live exclusively in the water. Otters. Otters are one of the groups, yes. There's many species, though. So there's one group that has only one species that's come back to the water. Um, bears. Exactly. Bingo. So Ursus maritimus is the polar bear, and they have a lot of the same adaptations that many of the whales and dolphins and seals and manatees and dugongs and all these things have. But I'll go through those in a minute. First, a little bit about taxonomy. The origin of these clades is pretty controversial in the literature. There's a lot of back and forth about what's most related to what, which land animals are most related to these marine groups. The only thing that I can say pretty much for certain from the consensus in the literature is that the whales are most closely related to hippos. Everything else is sort of moving around a lot. But as more sort of integrated methods come into play, I think we'll have a better sense of what's going on. Can I say I'm pretty sure that the polar bear is related to to bears? Okay, so you might think that polar bears are related to bears, um, but you'd be 100% correct on that. Yeah. <laughs> I've not I've not researched where otters have come from yet, but um, give it time. I'll solve that problem too. Good, amazing. <laughs> No, so the whales are most closely related to the hippos. I had heard that. Um, and I suppose hippos are semi-aquatic, so that makes... You can sort of see that relationship. Mm-hmm. Though it's unclear whether that those adaptations have, ar- have arisen independently in the hippos or not. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. it's The basal, the most common ancestor, we're not sure whether it had those adaptations or not yet. But we'll find out someday, I hope. Brilliant. So some of the other adaptations to these marine environments, I was surprised to find in my research that most of them that are sort of notable and regular amongst these different groups, from the bears to the whales, are to do with cold regulation um, or sort of insulation from the cold, which makes a lot of sense. The water is cold in most of the oceans. But I didn't realize it was this sort of like, if you want to live in the ocean, you better have a thick layer of insulation around you. Because almost everything that lives in an ocean environment has blubber or some sort of thick fur that keeps it insulated from the cold. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago with the um, the whales when they travel to their birthing grounds. It's because the sea mm. is warmer and the young whales don't have enough insulation yet. So they have to build up their insulation before going out to their feeding grounds. Cool. Cool. Ecology and functional morphology in practice. Some of the other adaptations to life in the water include sensory adaptations, which I find particularly interesting uh, in light of our episode on eyes, because a lot of these have to do with other ways of seeing, because visibility in the water is not always so clear. Um, most animals that have that live in the water have these sort of like flaps on their ears so they can open and close them, because most mammals have these ear canals, but they're used to having air in them, not water in them. So when they go down deep, they have flaps that can close them, the whale group, including the dolphins, has developed this ultrasonic sound way of communicating 
and seeing where they are in murky water, uh, which I think is really cool. That is cool. Uh, one thing that surprised me is, as a youngster, and it was that thing if you learn surprisingly, like, like you were saying with plankton, is I always assumed that when these animals dive, they, they took a brief, deep breath in. Um, so mm. when whales go, but they don't, they actually breathe out, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. One of the other modifications in a lot of these deep diving animals is you see flexible ribs because actually the lungs collapse when they get down to a certain pressure, which to me, I think that would like be the worst thing I could possibly imagine. But apparently they can do this because their rib cages aren't sort of holding out or holding up weight. They're very flexible bones. That is that what causes problems when they beach? I don't know. Because, yeah, I know that they can't hold their weight on land. Mm. So I wonder if that is related to that soft sort of uh, rib cage. The very last thing that I want to mention about these adaptations, something I had never even thought of, is, of course, if you're living in the ocean, what you're going to be drinking is salt water. And mammals don't do so well with that. And the way that they have adjusted to this is by, like, we have put in a bunch of lobes in our brain. We've, like, folded and enfolded our brains. They do the same thing with their kidneys. So the kidneys are highly lobed, and they're really efficient at filtering out seawater. That's really cool. It's nice to think, because, yeah, we have such a strong relationship with mammals, instinctively, that we can relate to them. That that idea that when one lives in such an alien environment, the adaptions that they have and how different they are to us becomes a lot more obvious. So I thought I'd finish off with something that might be perhaps completely unrelatable to us. Uh, now, if you were predictable for picking mammals, I went fully predictable here. I Googled something I knew nothing about, which was marine insects. Weird. Yeah. Um, if you guys can name a marine insect, I will buy you a beverage of your choice. I'm going to have some thirsty friends, it looks like. Yeah, I I feel like I did know this fact at one point. Uh, it's just gone. It's gone from my, my brain. Well, they're called halibates, or halibates, I guess. And there's a few of them. They mainly live on the seashore, so they, they obviously have an adaption for coping with salt water. There are five species of these halibates. So only five insects in Taiwan. Do you think how many insects there are? Only five of them are really found in what would be considered open ocean. And this is quite amazing. They're actually quite hard to find and study. And they don't really swim. They're not swimming in the open ocean like we would understand. They are. They live on the surface of the ocean. They eat mostly zooplankton. They don't die, uh, but they've been recorded eating other things like uh, other floating insects, uh, dead jellyfish. Um, and it might be that multiple multiple halibates might be eating the the same thing, um, and they might even cannibalize their own nymphs, which is yes, yeah, so they might even be cannibals. What's really cool I found is they don't know what the nymphs eat, so they manage to get some and they manage to put them in uh, a tank in a lab, and they didn't eat a single thing. And they were, like, chucking in bits and bobs for what they thought they might be, uh, might be after, and nymphs weren't biting. So we really don't know what the nymphs eat, but there are some theories that it might be to do with uh, things that accumulate on the sea surface and things like that. Um, but what's really amazing is these sort of skirting behaviour is they're super fast. They can go about a metre a second on the seawater. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's rivaling humans. <laughs> Like that's we're not that fast on water. No. Certainly not walking on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, on those speedy insects, I think that's probably a, a good time to end our exploration of the ocean. It's been a good voyage. Yeah, it was uh, smooth sailing. 
Yeah, we cruised through it, really. I can't um, wait to see what the tide brings in next week. So, yeah, that does bring this week to an end. But next week, we'll be back, and we'll be talking about languages. Yeah, definitely we'll um, communicate some interesting stuff about languages next week. And I should say, if anyone wants to get in contact, uh, you can do. We'd love to hear from you. So we do. We are on Facebook under the Nat Select. Uh, if you search on Facebook, you can find us there. So yeah, if you wanna, if you have any questions or wanna find out more, feel free to mention us. Uh, you can find a link to our website there as well. So um, where we write some blogs and things like that. So yeah, we do love to hear from you. So don't be afraid. For now, I think that's a goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from Nick. Bye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Ocean, Arctic. No, it's a sea. This is terrible podcasting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> none of us know the names of the things we research. <laughs> <laughs>